2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll pick it up in verse 11. A lot of times I like to back up a verse or two to give more of a context of what's going on so you're not just parachuting in on one particular spot. The problem with that, as I've highlighted as we've gone through 2 Corinthians, is he keeps building an argument. And to back up properly to set the full context, you've got to go back to the middle of chapter 3. So we're just going to drop in in verse 11 when he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance, not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the text of Scripture that we get to examine today. Lord, may we not just hear, but may we be stirred, may we be moved. Maybe, may we actually have the, the willingness to apply your word. Not just hear what it says, not just be a hearer, but be an effectual doer, starting with me. I pray, Father, for these things in Jesus' name, amen. There's a saying that goes something like this. It says, don't just talk about your philosophy, embody it. Uh, I found that uh, there are a lot of philosophers. I had a time in my life when I liked reading from different philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, who actually, Epicurus, if you're not familiar with him, he's the guy that's famous largely for one particular saying, let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. And you might not know that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, when they were talking back and forth in their letters, they both said that they found Epicurus to be the only one of the ancient philosophers who actually kind of touched the reality of the world that they lived in. They felt like he was the most useful of the ancient philosophers. Well, I read through various philosophers and even coming into the modern era and all of that, and I, I guess I spent a lot of time considering that. And then I ran into a guy named Diogenes. Some of you may have heard of him. He's famous largely, I think, for one line. Alexander the Great came to him. He was the king of the world, so to speak, and he comes and he says to Diogenes, he says, hey, man, I'll grant you a wish. What is it that you would like? Anything, you know, ask it of me. And Diogenes responded very simply. He said, you're standing in my sunlight. Get out of the way. So you might ask yourself, when you say something like that to the, the king of the world, what's he going to do to you? Is he going to smash and destroy you? Diogenes apparently was not too worried about it. And Alexander the Great, when they asked him after that what his thoughts of Diogenes were, he said, had I not been born Alexander, I would wish to be born Diogenes. Alexander recognized something in this philosopher, who, by the way, was sleeping in a barrel just on the parameter of the the uh, city of Athens. He would go into the market area and beg for food. 
and he was called by many in Athens a dog because he would bark at people. He basically spent his time poking holes in the philosophies and the, the theories of the world that the big names had. For example, a very famous of the time, not, not so much anymore, but a very famous uh, quote from Plato was they asked him his definition of man. He said, a featherless biped was his definition of man. So Diogenes, being the kind of guy that he was, he went out and found a chicken and plucked all its feathers and then walked into the academy in front of all the, the smart people and Plato and all that. He brought in this chicken, this featherless chicken. He goes, behold the man. This was a guy who was willing to live out the consequences of his philosophical system. This, was suppo- this brought an authenticity to it that Alexander the Great recognized, and he said, that dude's the real thing. He might be a little nutty, but he's the real thing because he actually lives out what he claims. He walked around with a lantern in the daylight throughout Athens, and he would say, and they'd say, what are you doing with a lantern in the day? He goes, I'm looking for a real man. I'm looking for an honest man. What he was saying was, all of you are walking around claiming you believe one thing, and yet you're doing another. So Alexander the Great looked at this guy, and as real recognizes real, he saw that. And he goes, this guy actually embodies what he proclaims. And Plato and these others didn't actually do that. This is our complaint in a lot of ways with postmodernism, as you know. Postmodernism puts forward these ideas and these philosophical concepts that can't be lived out. So you should rightly poke holes in that. Diogenes would rightly be like, what are you even talking about? And he would poke the holes in the philosophical system to show this is nonsense. You don't live out what you claim. And that means you're a fraud and your system doesn't really work. Now, why does that matter? How does that fit? Because many of us in the Christian world seem to think we can live in like, I don't know, maybe not blatantly sinful ways, but quasi-sinful ways, and it's not that big a deal. I know when I was young, I thought that you could essentially live how you wanted as long as you professed the right message, it was okay. Paul just said in the text in chapter 4, he was talking about uh, we have this, this treasure in earthen vessels, baked dirt. We have this treasure, this greatest of gifts contained in this humble whatever we are, you know, animated dirt and water. And so I guess I thought, and I know many people think, well, it doesn't really matter how I'm acting, it just matters the message I convey. But that's not what Scripture presents. The message and the messenger are wrapped up in one another. You don't separate Jesus from his word, for example. They, when you go and tell someone the gospel, they will look at your life to see if it's made any real difference. And if it hasn't permeated into your life so that it controls, then you're, you're a fraud in varying degrees. You're unwilling, like Diogenes was with his philosophical system, to go live in a barrel begging for food so that you can be utterly free. At least that guy lived it out. Many a Christian chooses to only somewhat live it out. Jesus said you can only have one master. You can't serve wealth and God. You will have to choose. 
And that crossroads is presented to us over and over again through life. And most in America, it would seem, with the nice things that we've had, have been able to straddle that, ride two horses at the same time like a circus act for a little while. But the Lord brings you to an impasse. And that impasse, if you're awake, if you're paying attention, is your own integrity. Your integrity matters. That is a oneness, a sameness between what you say and what you do. It doesn't mean that you never act different when you're at home versus when you're in public. It means that all your actions can be wrapped back around one central nucleus, one epicenter. There's one event horizon in the life of a child of God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and everything is to be wrapped around that. And you see Paul tying it all together here as he returns to the gospel by the end of that text that I read, by the time you get to verse 14. So my point here being driven home is that your integrity matters immensely. You cannot separate the message from the messenger. So we go back to the text, verse 11. He says, therefore, continuing his argument, progressing on, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a um, complex concept that's not as simple as just being terrified, and it's not, nor is it as simple as just being in awe of God. It is this overwhelming nature that you see personified when anyone actually sees God throughout Scripture. They fall apart, they're overwhelmed, they're undone. Paul had those experiences that he does not elaborate much upon. He doesn't spike the football on those things, but he definitely knows the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is known more for what it produces in your life than the emotion that is easily seen. The Lord looks to the one who trembles at his word, for example. So Paul, knowing that reality, the the awesome splendor of God, knowing who God is, provokes him to persuade men. Persuade them of what? would be the question. Well, at view, what is in perspective here in this immediate text is not the gospel as far as what he needs to persuade men. And he gets to that actually later in the same text. But currently what he's going to talk about is his integrity. The problem Paul has in Corinth repeatedly is that they don't think Paul is a big deal. They want to dismiss Paul. And you know that same thing still going on today? Some of us in, in more reformed circles and, and whatnot revere Paul, and some revere him too much. They kind of have elevated him beyond humanity. Uh, but what, what is going on in the world today is there's, there's a subtle and sometimes very direct effort to separate the words of Paul from the words of Jesus. And you've seen this, I'm sure. Well, Jesus never said anything about that. Paul did that. Well, Paul's not Jesus, and his words don't matter as much. That's not what we understand about the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, But there is this effort to get rid of Paul in Corinth by intruders, we'll call them, false teachers. And if they can wedge Paul out of the picture, they'll have their way. And where is it that they would take them? We don't know exactly. I don't even know if the false teachers know exactly where they want to move the church of Corinth. They just know they want it away from Paul. This is what happens when you demonize somebody in your life. You've decided they're horrible, 
and you don't care what happens just so long as they pay for something, just as long as they pay the price. The false teachers here want to move Paul out, and in order to do that, they need to undermine who he says he is. So Paul has to do some of the most bizarre things, most uncomfortable things he ever will have to do in his writings. He has to defend his travel plans back in chapter 2. And now going forward, you'll find that he gets pushed in a position where he has to actually talk about stuff he's very uncomfortable with talking about. That is his personal experiences and the things that he's endured for Christ. He doesn't want to do that. But he's been jammed into a corner. Paul is trying to appeal to them from the basis of the purity of his heart and then, of course, the actions that they've seen done in, in their very midst. So he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God and we hope that we are made manifest in your conscience. What is he talking about here? Well, who Paul is and who, and when he's using the, the plural here, when he's talking about we, he's talking about those who are with him, like a Timothy and Titus. He's, he's saying here who they are, the reality of who they are, is known to God. It's no mystery to God who they are. God knows exactly who they are. And what a comfort that is if you're pure, if your heart is clean. That is one of the greatest comforts you will know. You get into a, a serious problem in life. Uh, maybe you're pulled into court over some issue. I don't know what it is, but when in the purity of your conscience before God, if you have that, you can sleep at night. Uh, so he is comforted by that side of it, but he wants that same principle to be extended to these people. He wants them that, if at all possible, that they can see his heart in the same way. That they wouldn't look at Paul with squinting eyes, like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, what are you really up to? Paul's tried to show them in the last letter, and then there's a letter in between First and Second Corinthians. He's tried to show them these things, who he really is. He's trying to show them that his own actions have, have borne the proof of that. And he wants that to be the thing that connects in their mind. When they think of Paul, they can think of a pure-hearted individual who cares for them. And why wouldn't they? That's Paul's point. Why wouldn't they think of me that way? Why wouldn't the church of Corinth imagine Paul to, be, to have a pure heart in, his, in this process? This is the guy who brought the gospel to him in the first place. This is the guy who, who came to them in their desperation, in their darkness, and shined the light. Why would Paul now be the guy who, even though he's authenticated his apostleship to them, the signs of an apostle were performed among them, he says later, he's not walked around in arrogance, giving them clever ideas so they can compete with the philosophical systems of the time. He's not doing that. Instead, he's giving them the pure, unadulterated truth of the gospel, and he's tried to stay in that lane. It's not like Paul isn't smart enough to give him some other rhetoric, but he's chosen not to. And that should endear Paul to their hearts. But that hasn't worked, tragically. That hasn't done the job. They want something else for some reason. These intruders in their effort to undermine Paul, if they can discredit Paul, they will also undermine not only his immediate message of the gospel, but in the end, they will undermine what Paul stood for, that is the truth. 
Now, how big of a deal is this? Well, we find that after Paul dies, one of the first few letters that's written is uh, from the church fathers written to Corinth, and we find they have the same problems. We find that they persisted. Some of them probably listened to what Paul had to say. Many did not. This church ultimately did not continue to stand. It fell. Its candlestick was removed. Its opportunity to glorify God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation disappeared. And that could be in large degree because they didn't really listen to Paul here. Which is kind of interesting because if the Apostle Paul were to stroll into the room here, we all imagine that we would kowtow to just like whatever he's saying. He'd be like the, the greatest celebrity around. But would he? I don't know. I mean, the, the way they talk about him is that his, his letters are, are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is contemptible. They, they liked Apollos preaching better. He didn't have the most, you know, magnanimous personality, apparently. Maybe Paul was kind of what you might call a nerd now. You know, I don't know. But he certainly didn't have that personal gravitas that, that people are so impressed with, the charismatic personality or something that they were able to dismiss him rather easily. They did not have Paul on a pedestal. They didn't look at him that way. Instead, they looked at him as like, well, he's that, he might be an apostle, but he's definitely not one of the originals. And that was used against him repeatedly. So Paul has to defend his apostleship. He has to defend himself. And what an awkward position that is for us to be in as Christians. Our goal in many ways is what John the Baptist said. He, Christ, must increase and I must decrease. The, the role of a Christian is to be self-effacing, not promote yourself. So what does that look like when somebody puts you in a corner? How do you defend yourself? And that's what Paul has to do here. He's hoping that the purity of his heart would be known to them, it would be manifest, it would be visible to them, that Paul's not some conniving guy, going back to verse 11. Now verse 12, he says, We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. The false teachers apparently had some sweet accolades. They had some, some incredible Amazon reviews of their product. And you know the power of Amazon reviews, don't you? I don't know how many times I've been like, this is a cool item. This is exactly what I was looking for. Reviews. I click them. And then I go down to the reviews, and they're like, this thing is terrible. It breaks. And then you see a little video, and they show it to you. And you start watching the videos, and you're like, oh, that thing is garbage. Right? But a lot of those, you know, a lot of those are bought and paid for. A lot of that is a rival company trying to tank that. So what happens is a good product could get completely trashed by Amazon reviews, and now you discard it because of the word of other people. That is exactly the kind of thing that's happening in Corinth. These new teachers, these intruders come in, and they have letters of recommendation from supposedly important people. And those letters are powerful enough that they bring down the Apostle Paul in their mind. Now think that through. If you can do that to Paul, who can you not do that to? Consider that. So don't be too hurt if that kind of thing happens to you in life. Don't get too worked up about it. This is what happens. The devil always wants to undermine and destroy those who are doing what's right. When you're headed in the right direction, you better expect opposition. And many times that opposition comes from a place you never imagined. 
in an in a area that you thought, oh, I'm good here. I would imagine Paul was not expecting such kind of insults coming at him. He would expect that this last phrase here, that a Christian would know better than to take pride in appearance. A Christian knows, just almost instinctively ought to know, God does not look at this and decide to save. You look back at King David. And even Samuel, I'm struck by this. Samuel goes in, he starts looking at all the sons of Jesse. One son comes in, and what does Samuel say? He's like, oh, he's an impressive man. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. And the Lord says, no, I have not chosen him. Don't look at the outside, for I have rejected him. Don't look at the outside, for I have rejected him. I do not look as man looks, but I look upon the heart. And the Christian should know that immediately. And yet, we far too easily get duped by the good Amazon reviews. We far too easily get duped by the guy who sold a million books and who's got the right degrees and has got the right people endorsing him. And Paul doesn't want to play that goofy game. He doesn't want to go down that road and start saying, look what I've done. Look at my achievements and all the things I've gone through. And yet they, they kind of corner him, as it were, because they, they are, the, cor- the Corinthians are taking pride in appearance. They are enamored with the glittery, with the showy. And they're willing to listen to false teachers who would bring them into bondage rather than freedom and then embrace these people as though they are their friends and treat Paul as though he's the enemy. The irony of that and the danger of that. These false teachers have apparently put Paul, he says, we are not again commending ourselves. It would seem that Paul's had to do this more than once. They would say, see, look, Paul's going to try to appeal. So the false teacher would say, look, when you say this about Paul, he's going to have to say this is why he's recommending. He's going to mention the 12 apostles. Notice he doesn't do that. Paul doesn't appeal to Peter and James, even though they did approve of him. Notice he doesn't go there. He's not, he says, we're not again doing that, but we want to give you something to be proud of. So what is that thing they should be proud of? The purity of Paul's heart. What he was just talking about in verse 11. The purity of his heart. This guy has done us no wrong. This guy brought us the gospel. This guy has stood with us. He was with him for at least 18 months before this time. They saw him day in and day out. He refused to take money. He worked in the market. He did tent making. And then he would come and preach the gospel. He refused to let anything pollute his integrity, and that should speak volumes to people of wisdom. Ironically enough, that Diogenes guy I was talking about earlier, that philosopher, he had a, another interesting quote. He said, it takes a wise man to discover a wise man. And it would seem that Paul maybe was expecting too much from them, and maybe sometimes that's exactly what we do. We quickly get impressed with somebody. I remember back in college, there was a, a professor who I love, man, but uh, if he said something, I just agreed with it, basically. And as I got out of college and was actually studying through a particular text of Scripture, I realized he was completely wrong about something. Uh, that, was, that was awkward because I had become enamored with this guy who's way smarter than me. And he had all this, all this learning. And uh, 
That was difficult because it was a dawning in my brain of like, oh, what else did I just absorb? What else did I just take in without thinking through because I liked the guy so much? That would be a situation like Corinth is in. They like these false teachers. They have fluffed them up in some way. And boy, they've learned how to flatter them or whatever thing that, that tickles their fancy. And so they have got them. They've got their attention. And they're now demonizing Paul. Then Paul jumps over in verse 13 after talking about this commending himself and and rebuking this general idea, subtly at least, of taking pride in appearance. He then says in verse 13, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Um, I read various scholars on this particular verse, and here's, here's where I actually landed in pondering this. When he's talking about being beside himself or of sound mind, he's saying it's for God or it's for you. It's a very abrupt kind of statement. It seems that Paul is emotionally kind of agitated by this. I think what's happening is um, these sound like contradictory accusations to me. What it sounds like to me is they've put Paul in a position where he can't win. If he does one thing, they say, see. If he does another thing, they say, see. So whatever he does, they've already got their answer prepped. It's kind of like a political debate where everyone's disingenuous, and they're just waiting for the gotcha moment. They don't really care if the guy's right about something. They're just waiting for, how can I twist that and turn that? That would seem to be the situation that Paul is in. They've, they've painted him into a corner. He's in a no-win situation. Paul has been acting out of the purity of his heart, and he's been misinterpreted no matter what he does. You may have found yourself in such a situation. So what do we do? This forces Paul, as I said earlier, into maybe the most uncomfortable situation, at least in all of his writings. And Paul finds that he's in trouble with this church because he's doing the right thing. Paul's doing the right thing in not appealing to trophies, and not appealing to pedigree. And for that, he's paying a price because these guys are willing to go there. This is why bad people kind of run the world, isn't it? This is why they grab hold of people. You ever watch a false teacher, a preacher, a prosperity preacher, something like that? He's got a massive crowd of people and you go, what in the world? Why are they listening to that? And then you listen a little bit and you're like, oh, that was entertaining. That was interesting. That was funny. That was weird. Whatever it was, it got your attention. And then they say things people like to hear. And you go, oh, okay, I get it more. You see it. If you look at just the surface of it, you understand the, the, the showy lights work, man. And they'd work on you if not for the grace of God. Paul has found himself in trouble because he's doing the right thing. And what is this right thing he's doing? As I said, he's refusing to play the toot my own horn game. He's refusing to brag about who's got the best stuff, who's got the best endorsements, who's really, you know, got the the right accolades, who's winning the GOAT debate. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but in most every sport ever played, there's a discussion about who's the greatest of all time. Is it Michael Jordan or LeBron or Will Chamberlain or Bill Russell? Just keep going. 
any sport, we've got that same debate, and I think that same thing was going on. You go back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, and you find they were lining up Paul and Peter and Apollos and trying to line up behind their favorite teacher. Paul's refusing to boast in externals. He doesn't want to do name dropping. He doesn't want to do who's got the coolest story, who has the best travel photos. Why not? Because that's not what Christians are supposed to do. Paul doesn't want to act that way at all for some very simple reasons. Number one, because he's humble. Paul says of himself, this is how he properly, humility is properly assessing yourself. That is knowing where you actually belong in God's created order and plan. Paul rightly assesses himself. He's a humble man. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, that he is a nobody. On most historians' list of people that change the world, Paul's always in the top ten. The Apostle Paul says, I'm a nobody. How does that fit with our little self-esteem world today? How does that jive with that? The Apostle Paul in Holy Scripture says, I'm a nobody. He says further back in 1 Corinthians chapter one, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, he talks about how he's a servant. He says in chapter 4 of that same text of 1 Corinthians, he says that he is actually not just a servant, but he's a steward and a servant, an under-rower galley slave. I don't know how many of you watched Ben-Hur, but any of you that did, you can remember that series of scenes where Charlton Heston, right? Wasn't it Charlton Heston? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Jim. Uh, he's down there, Charlton Heston's down there rowing among a sea of other people chained into the boat. A galley-level slave is not someone you build monuments to. A galley slave is not someone you promote as though he's this, I mean, you put posters of him on your wall. He's just essentially a machine in Roman thinking. You get that guy, you put him down there along with a sea of other guys who can survive and, and continue to row, and they chain them in to the boat. So if the boat goes down, they go down with it. Paul says, I'm a nobody, I'm a servant, I'm an under-rower. He says he's a worker in God's field back there in that text as well. Paul knows who he is, and he knows his role. If you would, turn back to 1 Corinthians. Let's look at that for a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I meant chapter 3. I said chapter 3, right? <laughs> He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. That's how he assesses himself. I'm a worker in the field. He said that earlier. He says, I'm just a servant, as I said in chapter uh, 1 as well. Here he says, backing up just a few verses to verse 6, actually verse 5, he says, What then is Apollos, this guy you've exalted, what is he? And what is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, 
even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Servants, slaves, I planted, verse 6, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, pulling that together and how you ought to think of a man like Paul or Apollos, but a man like Paul in particular, so then how ought you think of him? So then neither the one who plants, Apollos, nor the one who waters is anything. But God who causes the growth. What's he saying here? You're no big deal. Your job, Paul, Apollos, or you, is to faithfully do what God has given you. All the real heavy lifting is up to him. Now, on one hand, that's very freeing. On another hand, that says get to work. Because if you understand your job, that is, you go through, oh, I don't know, Ephesians 2, 10 and verse 1 through 10, and what were you created to do, good works and all of that. But our job is to be faithful to do the works. God does the growing, the real lifting, the reacting to the gospel. When Peter stands up and gives his message in the book of Acts at Pentecost and thousands get saved, that wasn't Peter. That wasn't his eloquence that pulled it off. Otherwise, the world gets saved because of the eloquence of Jesus Christ. You really think he couldn't pull off a, a, a enamoring speech? That's ridiculous. Jesus was the greatest teacher of all time. That's not the issue. The people didn't react because Peter was so groovy when he gave his speech. They reacted because God saw fit to reap a harvest at that time through the message preached. God does the real work. What a wonderful truth that is to know. Paul knows who he is and he knows his role. Do you? Do I? Paul is a worker in the field. He knows that God's doing the heavy lifting. Paul is firmly convinced of these things. But in the sighted world that we live in, we dumb sheep play dumb games. And quite often the guy who brags and showboats and loves to remind you of all the cool stuff he's done gets the attention and gets the applause. To the extent that you and I would even take an Apostle Paul and be like, he's not really that important. What he has to say, eh, these guys, man, they're, that's where it's at. Because that's the fast track to the fame, to the, to the followers, whatever. That's the extent to which we would go. Uh, it is tragic to see in our world today that the goal is basically just attention. It's just applause. At whatever cost, whatever shameful thing you're willing to do, if it'll get attention, you win. But Christians are to see beyond that nonsense. So what is it that actually keeps Paul from playing this game of accolades and trophies? What is it that ought to keep us from doing the same thing? He says back in our text, verse 14, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, for the love of Christ controls us. It is the causal agent, that is the love of Christ, that holds our feet to the fire, that keeps us from lashing out impulsively. Paul says this 
This love of Christ is so consuming that it modifies, reigns in all his loose areas of thinking and behaving. For the love of Christ controls us. And what is this controlling thing? None of us like really to be controlled. None of us like to be manhandled or managed. None of us want to think we're not autonomous. By the way, that was the thing, that was the driving kind of desire of that Diogenes guy was to be truly free. That's what a lot of us want is to be free. We, we don't even contemplate what real freedom looks like. We don't want to be controlled, but we fail to see that the thing that masters us, the thing that is our governing agent is our God. You just have to choose which God that's going to be. This controlling agent that Paul speaks of here is manifested in this, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. God did for us what we cannot do for ourselves by sending his son to die in our place. He died for all, verse 15, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's the controlling agent. That's the thing that ought to bind you lovingly. That gospel reality that you once were blind, you were once in true darkness, and he transferred you from the domain of darkness into his light, the kingdom of his beloved son. The more we recognize all that he's done, the more eager the praise for his name will come from our lips, the more we will see what a glorious control this is, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live we who call upon Christ and use his name, they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, the one who died and rose again on our behalf. Trust you're motivated to live for Christ today, that you're stirred to action to live for him, the one who died for you. And let it control your integrity, your behavior, so that there's a oneness between what you say and do. I'll just pray. Father, we thank you that we can be here today. We thank you for this, this text. We thank you that Paul was put through such anguish that we might benefit from, from what he went through. Lord, thank you for faithful servants who show us the way. Lord, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak to do these things. May your spirit overcome. May we overcome these things in Christ and give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.